This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You're listening to a Joycast from GLBTIQ community radio station, Joy 94.9. Pete Dillon, welcome back. Good evening, Serena Ryan. Welcome back. This oh, is the, and to you too. It's, this is uh, the first time in weeks that we've actually sat in the same studio. Indeed. We had the lovely Noni last week we filling did. in whilst you were out on assignment and the week before I was poorly. That's right. I, I flew solo with the very able assistance of Matt Nock. Well, Matt before. held up. Uh, Matt is our technical producer for those tuning in at this uh, five minutes past seven. Matt wrote us some filthy messages across the desk last week. I have to tell you, he was, he had Noni in stitches. Did he get a bit saucy? He got a little bit mincy, actually. Oh, I think he needs a pen that works too. I think he, uh, yeah, that rustling in the background is yes. just, I don't know what's happening. Look, big show tonight. We're going to catch up with uh, the amazing Dan Glick, who yes. we've been chatting to now for a good couple of years around mm. the very suspicious murder of, suspicious death mm. of uh, Scott Johnson, yes. the Californian gay man killed in the late 80s. Uh, on a Sydney mm. beach. Mm. Yeah, so mm. that's they've got an update for us. They're back in back in Australia. Good, because it was only about four weeks ago that we spoke to them when uh, Scott's brother and his sister were here in Australia. We had a good chat to them then, so um, it'll be nice to catch up on some news and see what's breaking, if, uh, if anything. Mm. Well, there's been a development, mm. so Dan will tune us into that tonight. Excellent. Um, good, good journalist. Another story that uh, we are following, we started this late last year as well, um, some changes to Indian surrogacy laws. There's now a situation where there's going to be a, a raft of children born in India that are stateless. It's interesting because a lot of uh, the changes relate to um, you now have to be a man and a woman and married for two years. So to use a surrogate in India, you 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 know the option for gay men and single people to use a surrogate is is now being ended. So there is some conjecture around those kids that have been sort of booked, if you like, by yes. gay couples yes. or, or other, and whether or not when they arrive that they'll be able to get those kids home. Well, the, the children will then be stateless only because uh, if they can't come here to Australia where their, their, birth, where their, where their natural parent is, um, where their, their father is, um, and they can't stay in India because of the surrogacy changes that they, they don't, they're not recognised they under the Indian law. So there's there's some interesting discussions to be had. So we're going to talk to uh, Rodney Chan-Cruz, who's from Gay Dads Australia, mm-hmm. been following this story for some time as well. So Rodney will have a, a good chat to us about you know, what the situation is and how these children can be taken care of. Look, it is, it is a really interesting development and I'll be very interested to see what Rodney thinks you know, is going to happen and how that might play through. The other people we're talking to today um, is uh, uh, are people attached to the, the HIV research that's coming out of the Alfred Hospital. We'll be chatting mm. to Dr. Paul Cameron. There's been some really interesting developments yeah. from the Alfred Hospital quite recently when he'll chat us through those. Mm. In, di- in addition to the American story that came out yeah. yesterday, which is about a young baby that was treated quite vigorously from birth, a mm. premature baby with HIV and two and a half years down the track, has no evidence of the, the virus, the virus well, this this uh, we'll be talking to when we do talk to Paul Cameron, the lead author of this um, is currently in Atlanta, 
and uh, American Time this morning will in fact be presenting this paper to a very large gathering in the United States of this research around HIV. So it's hot off the press. It is hot off the press. It and is. we would love to hear what you think. We've got a jam-packed show, as we've just mentioned. You can send us an SMS on 0427 JOY 949. You can give the lovely Gordon on the front desk a call on the Landy, 1300 JOY 949. Drop us a line on air at joy.org.au. And where can people tweet us? They can salt n- pepper joy uh, on the Twitters. That'll come to us. Welcome to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our Joycasts. This is Fiona O'Loughlin and I heard that my old ID was getting a bit boring, so here's a new one. Hello. Oh, that's Fiona O'Loughlin, the Hello. comedian. She's yes. not that funny. I went into this, into this discussion on air um, about Fiona. We'll have that in the car on the way home <laughs> with a gay time. A bit of a gay time. 13 minutes past seven here on Joy 94.9. You're with Serena and Pete on Salt and Pepper. 0427 Joy 949 is the SMS. 1300 Joy 9499. Speak to the gorgeous Gordon on the front desk. You can email on air at joy.org.au or Serena, they can tweet. Salt and Pepper Joy. That's, that's the Twitterverse. Um, we just mentioned in our intro... Um, five or six minutes ago that we are leading out tonight with a story about HIV research here in Melbourne at the Alfred Hospital. Joining us live on the line from Atlanta is one of the lead authors from the HIV research team, Dr. Paul Cameron. Paul, good evening. Hello. How are you? I'm well. I'm actually in Melbourne. Oh, you're in Melbourne. Oh, we thought you were in Atlanta. Atlanta. My the lead, apologies. The lead person, Professor Lewin, is actually in Atlanta. Okay. And I understand she's actually presenting the results of this research um, in Atlanta as we yeah. speak. Yeah. Yeah. Who's she presenting that to, Paul? Uh, this is uh, Croy, which is one of the main uh, research uh, uh, meetings for HIV researchers. So okay. it's a conference on retroviruses and opportunistic infection. So it's kind of a big deal. Walk us through uh, the findings that we've been reading about in the paper today. Okay, so the, uh, the prelude to this is basically that people on antiretroviral therapy <coughs> usually do quite well um, in terms of uh, improved uh, life expectancy and health. They have uh, low viral loads and recover immune uh, immunity essentially to normal, but if they stop the medication, the antiretroviral drugs, uh, almost everyone will have a rebound of virus and, and they will then uh, begin to uh, damage the immune system again. So this means it has to be lifelong therapy. So our research is aimed at trying to prevent that recurrence of virus um, by tackling the uh, the silent infection that's occurring in everyone that's on antiretroviral treatment. So, Paul, essentially the virus goes to sleep in in some people uh, and the cells then are not obvious uh, because they are asleep. This research that you've done with, I believe, a cancer drug um, has has shown that it can wake up those viral cells and then potentially they can be attacked and killed um, to remove the virus from the system. Is that is that fair in yeah. layman speak? Yeah, yeah. So the the, um, the strategy is basically a two-fold strategy. The first is to wake up the virus uh, and then uh, allow the immune system or perhaps other drugs to then destroy the cells that then have uh, um, virus uh, expressed and able to be recognised. 
Okay, so the HIV virus has proven to be a very robust little critter. It seems like it's it, it's hard to pin down. And and what's your level of excitement around waking up this this sleeping beast, if you like? Well, I think the uh, this this is obviously the first step in the strategy of uh, clearing the virus, and there's a lot of uh, steps needed before we can say we have a cure. But I think. There's a lot of uh, interest in terms of um, work around the immunity that's required to destroy uh, virus once it's become expressed. Um, and there's, uh, as you might have heard, there's the, the baby and other examples of where early treatment with antiretrovirals may actually reduce the amount of virus that has to be removed to uh, affect cure. The, so this, this, uh, this strategy is really the first step in taking uh, people on antiretroviral treatment, treating, and we've shown that now virtually everyone, 90% of people under those circumstances, will begin to express virus again. And uh, we're now working on um, monitoring and trying to determine how much of that virus is then removed from uh, those individuals on treatment. Paul, the, the drug that we mentioned, the cancer drug Varinostat, yeah. um, what has that traditionally been used for in, uh, in cancer treatment? And just as, as a supplementary part of that question, is it an expensive drug to produce? Uh, yeah, so that, um, both of those are correct. It is uh, used for T-cell lymphomas, um, so that's its uh, licensed use. So we know it was a drug that was effective in T-cells because that's what it's been used for cancer. Mm -hmm. It was shown in, uh, in laboratory experiments that this drug will actually turn on the virus in uh, cells. So we knew that part of it was, uh, was uh, at least gives us the feasibility of using it. It's a licensed drug, um, so we can then use it uh, off-license um, because it is approved for human use and then try it in patients to see can we turn on the virus and indeed that that's what we've found um paul tell me you've got a uh, sample size of is it 18 to 20 hiv patients that you're working with so in this? for this trial there was 20 okay 20. um what are the risks in uh waking up the virus are, are you exposing uh the patients in any way to to further illness that they might have not have experienced as quickly? Um, yes, the, the, with almost any drug there is some risk. We thought the risk was uh, fairly low and we did select um, patients that didn't have other um, conditions such as hepatitis B um, because we didn't want to wake up other viruses uh, and we're now working through um, these samples to say is there any other viruses at all that are woken up by this process? But so far it was well tolerated. There was sort of minor side effects in quite a few of patients, um, such as a bit of nausea, um, but certainly no one stopped the medication during the, the treatment period. Paul, if we do go back, back to Varinostat, sorry, we're speaking with Dr. Paul Cameron. He is one of the research team that has announced this breakthrough in HIV research here in Melbourne in conjunction with both the Alfred Hospital and the Monash Medical Centre, amongst others. Paul, if I go back to Varinostat, if, is, is there... Is it possible to produce a, a cheaper slash generic version of that drug? Yeah. And if so, how does that then offer some effect in the developing world where HIV, particularly Africa, is such a significant issue? Yeah. 
So the, uh, the issues at this stage, we used it in a treatment regimen um, which has been used for treatment of cancer and we think that that's probably not going to be necessary for uh, HIV but we, we thought we should start with a dose that's known to be effective for its indication and then test it at that dose. So um, first of all, we may not need as much drug uh, and it is within a group called uh, HDAC inhibitors which is a sort of a, a group of drugs um, which uh, there is now a lot of interest in a lot of uh, drug companies in producing these drugs for various uses. And uh, I think uh, once there's economy of scale, the, the price of, of this group of drugs will come down dramatically. But we think it will probably be used in combination with other drugs and the definition of the other drugs is really the next sort of steps in this process defining how much we can achieve with one drug, how much we can achieve with multiple drugs. Paul, what's the scope of HIV infection at the moment worldwide? I mean, you probably don't know that exact figure, but can you ballpark it? Are, are the rates going up? Are they stabilising? Are we seeing a spike? Um, the, uh, the rates in the, uh, the Western world have stabilised to some extent. Um, certainly Australia, it was and plateaued, but there's been a slight increase over the last couple of years, again, in new cases. Uh, but the, the issue is that the more people that get effective antiretroviral treatment uh, and the, the longer they live, then the, the more uh, people that would need to try and get some definitive treatment. So the, there's about 35 million uh, people with HIV, that's the estimate worldwide, um, and there's currently a, a push to try and get uh, earlier treatment with antiretroviral drugs because that will then prevent transmission. So as a public health measure, uh, early treatment seems to be effective in curtailing the epidemic uh, and there's rollout of antiretroviral drugs, obviously, in the developing world. Um, so that's a big push to try and uh, treat the large numbers that are infected in uh, the developing world, uh, which is uh, obviously maintaining the epidemic and continuing transmission there. Paul, there's uh, members of our community, gay, and lesbian, gay men and lesbians, who've, who've had the virus, some for 30, 30 years or more, since the, uh, the beginning of the epidemic in the early to mid-80s that uh, surfaced in the United States, most, uh, yeah. most where it surfaced most. Um, those people that have battled um, for 30 years with HIV and possibly full-blown AIDS, if, a, if it has gone to that point, um, how, how good is this news for those people who have been on, you know, cocktail of drugs for decades? Yeah, I think uh, as opposed to a previous study um, which used Berinostat as a single dose um, and selected the patients to treat uh, according to whether their, their cells in tissue culture would respond to the drug, uh, we've basically taken a group that we haven't selected for response to the drugs and shown 90% of those patients will respond to the drug in terms of turning on the virus. Um, so I think that uh, we, we obviously were biasing our samples perhaps to those who, who were um, well controlled possibly earlier in the course of the disease, although we didn't select for that specifically. This is um, so I, th I think that, that probably wherever you are in the course of the disease, um, you may be, uh, may be uh, able to treat 
in this way to try and uh, completely eliminate the virus. We think probably earlier is is going to be easier to treat than later, but I think it is uh, does raise the possibility that we could treat probably at any stage. Look, it is uh, tremendously exciting news for for your team and and for anybody whose lives have been touched by HIV. We are noticing another a news item out of America today, Paul, that talks about a, a baby, a premature baby, that was, was treated quite aggressively um, from birth for the first 18 months of its life and, two and a half, at the age of two and a half is now showing no signs of the virus. I mean, you probably can't comment categorically on this, but is that is that quite rare, or do you think that there's another treatment paradigm here that's unfolding in the US yeah, that I, has I, a similar efficacy? Yeah, I, I think the issue is that we would never see our treatment as being a standalone treatment without antiretroviral drugs. I think antiretroviral drugs are going to remain the most uh, the first component of treatment. You have to control the virus. You have to. Uh, try and get this reservoir of silent virus down as low as possible. And there is quite a bit of literature which suggests if you start early, this reservoir of virus that you have to remove to effect a cure is is quite low. And I think that the baby probably represents the extreme of that, starting treatment extremely early. uh, And uh, before this reservoir gets uh, laid down to uh, a significant extent, so I think that, that that sort of fits in the paradigm that we're beginning to understand of treating early is an important um, component of a cure as well as obviously improving uh, life expectancy and quality of life. Dr. Paul Cameron is one of the authors of a new report, uh, new research with Professor Sharon Lewin and her team, part of a collaboration with Monash University, the Burnett Institute, the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and the National Association of People Living with HIV AIDS. Paul, we congratulate you and the team on the research. I understand that you'll pass that on to Professor Lewin and, and the remainder of the team uh, when they return from Atlanta where they're presenting this research now. We're very grateful for your time this evening. Okay. No Thanks, problem. Paul. Thank you. Very exciting news. Oh, it's great news it's for, just for those who, particularly those people who have a, a, a very low viral load or an almost undetectable viral load. This this is a provision that, that may in fact um, see them through the, the the dark tunnel into the light of, um, of of somewhere close to cure. Awesome wellness. Let's go to some uh, messages. I think. Thank you for listening to a Joycast from Joy ninety four point nine. Yes, you are listening to Joy of 94.927 minutes past seven here on a very beautiful Tuesday evening in Melbourne. It's glorious. It is glorious. One of the things we did talk about at the top of the show was um, there are some fears over some changes to Indian surrogacy law. Um, and there may be a, a whole bunch of children who are left stateless due to the changes in these laws. Stories run on 60 Minutes on Sunday night and then on Late Line last night. A bit of audio here introduces a couple of people who wanted to comment, a couple of doctors uh, around... Um, this and, before, and we'll play this before we get to Rodney Chan Cruz from Gay Dads Australia. So this is from ABC's Late Line program last night. Australians now require medical visas and the Indian government is precise about who they'll issue them to. The foreign man and woman must be duly married and the marriage should have sustained at least for two years. Dr Shivani Sachdev Gur says the changes have rocked the continent's baby-making industry. What we are doing is we are uh, pleading and requesting with the government 
uh, a body of doctors about 1200 doctors has written a letter and is arranging a meeting so that we can get a clarification dr sachdev gur says more than one third of her clients are australian gay men the babies that are born go to families that have longed for these babies, that have gone to great lengths for these babies and provide a very loving environment for these babies. And I feel they have every right to have this. But many Indians believe gays and singles should not have surrogacy rights and better regulations are needed. There have been reports of gay couple coming and taking uh, children. There have been reports of single parents coming and taking children. So, uh, you know, just for the safety and security of these children that, you know, one more, uh, government doesn't want to be held responsible for, uh, and especially uh, India doesn't want to be held responsible for whatever happens to these children later in some, some time. You see, uh, one has to understand that there are various possibilities. The possibility is that a child is produced like that, uh, who's loved by the parents and parents really want their own children so they, they want to have the child. Other possibility could be that you know these children are misused. They are sold in the market, their organs are sold in the market. Who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm just uh, talking about a very, very bad uh, scenario but it is possible. There's some interesting comments in that, particularly mm. that second woman who is a, a, a director of social service in India saying that... Um, those children are being protected and their organs might be sold in the market, the children might be sold in the market. I don't think she's quite aware of um, how civilised Australia actually and is. And just how wanted these children are. Absolutely. Uh, Rodney Chancruz is from Gay Dads Australia and he's uh, very much across this story. Rodney, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. An absolute pleasure. The changes in these laws that, uh, that we first announced in, in, in this program sort of mid to late last year are now showing some very real effects for uh, gay men and, and gay couples who uh, had pretty much signed on the dotted line or had an agreement for a surrogacy arrangement and now um, they're, they're going to be left in limbo. These children are going to be left stateless. Well, it's uh, it sounds um, quite bad from hearing the media reports and reading the media reports the last couple of days. Uh, and it is bad on an ongoing basis. But as for those... Uh, gay guys and gay couples who have already signed contracts prior to July 2012, um, they will be fine uh, and they will be able to um, return their children, um, return to Australia with their children. For those who signed after July 2012, but before about December, um, because they sort of didn't really announce that they kept it quite quiet, this change in policy, until about December, um, they're... Um, may have a, a little bit more problem, but we expect that the bottom line will be that they will be able to bring their children back, but there may be um, some issues with uh, getting the visa. And as for this issue about whether they're, um, they're going to be stateless children, it's uh, generally not the case. Uh, it is true that when they're born in India, they are born stateless. They're neither an Indian citizen nor an Australian citizen. But the Australian federal government is continuing to recognise these children born through surrogacy as um, uh, Australian citizens by descent. So um, these children will be able to uh, get Australian citizenship they just may have a little bit more difficulty getting out of the country um, using the visa system there. Rodney, um, tell me, do you have any sense of why India has moved to this policy change? Uh, I think there's um, 
uh, like in most countries, there's a conservative element within the country. And India is quite a conservative country overall, particularly when it comes to um, same-sex couples and indeed um, unmarried heterosexual couples. So in one sense, it's not surprising. Uh, what was surprising, I guess, was the way they introduced it. It was a little bit by stealth. Um, all the agencies um, which have been um, uh, helping uh, intended parents become parents uh, were caught unawares by it. Um, and as a result, and, and it's left a lot of people in limbo, limbo and a lot of people feeling very unsure about how they're going to proceed forward. But going forward, um, uh, essentially... Uh, single men and gay couples uh, are not going to be able to use India in the future. Which closes a door somewhere, but uh, a line from my favourite movie by Julie Andrews, somewhere where God closes a door, he opens a window. Does this now open a window for other nations like Bangladesh and Cambodia, some of those other developing nations in the in the Indochina region to open their doors to provide surrogacy where India will not? It's unlikely those two nations are going to in the near future anyway, simply because uh, they don't have the infrastructure and um, uh, the legal framework uh, to cope with it. But there is uh, another alternative that is uh, becoming quite popular, and that is Thailand. Um, and, of course, there's always America. America is sort of the... Um, the home of surrogacy, commercial surrogacy, and still the majority of surrogacy for gay men and for heterosexual couples is done in America, um, but it is expensive, uh, and Thailand offers a um, you know a slightly cheaper alternative. Is there a, is there an opportunity for for cashed up couples and and singles to bring surrogates from these countries to Australia for the gestational period, if you like? Uh, no, um, you could try and do it, but you would probably, uh, as soon as you'd uh, entered the country, you would um, come under Australian laws uh, with regard to um, surrogacy, and commercial surrogacy is um, uh, banned in all states. What if it was and framed as, as an altruistic surrogacy? So, you know, she is the, the cousin of my partner or, you know, however we could, we could prove or perhaps disprove it. What if it were the case that uh, it was an altruistic surrogacy rather than a commercial surrogacy arrangement? If it was an altruistic surrogacy, um, different rules would, be, uh, would apply, provided it genuinely was one. Um, but there are some rules regarding um, altruistic surrogacy, and generally they require the surrogate to be a, um, a, a resident of Australia in a particular state under which the surrogacy laws will apply. So um, it's an idea that has been floated by quite a few gay men, but it's not a very practical one. What, in, in your estimation, and you may not be able to give us a definitive number here, is, is there a, what's the group of people that are now no longer able to go to India for, for surrogacy? Is there, is there a wait list that is now somewhere else? Or? Uh, just, just from the um, guys who contact Gay Dads Australia, I'd say there's about 100 guys who are now um, had to put their plans on hold or reassess which country they're going to proceed in. So there was about 100 couples who were um, ready to go or had planned to um, start the process in India um, uh, from January onwards, and uh, now they're having to you know, reassess that. And it's, um, it's been very difficult for some because they had already um, 
uh, spent quite a bit of money and time uh, preparing for India. Um, and uh, now they're having to, you know, reassess that and, you know, that in a sense they've lost money in that regard. And it's, it is an expensive, even India and Thailand, which are cheaper than the US, they still are very expensive um, propositions. We're speaking with Rodney Chan Cruz. He is from Gay Dads Australia, talking about changes to Indian surrogacy. You mentioned that there is a hefty cost to go to the US. From my reckoning, I've I've understand it's somewhere in excess of a hundred thousand dollars to enter into a surrogacy arrangement in the United States. Uh, yes, that's right. In the US, um, you're probably looking at around about a hundred and fifty thousand to a hundred eighty thousand for a surrogacy um, uh, arrangement. In Thailand, you're looking at around about the $90,000 mark, and in India, it was around about the $80,000 mark. Of course, those figures vary uh, quite enormously, depending on um, uh, whether you have one or two children, whether you get pregnant the first go, and a whole range of other issues. Um, but they're the, the broad figures that um, we generally uh, advise people that they're looking at. So individuals and couples are, are considerably... Uh, heavily invested in making this happen? Yeah, uh, well, most couples, virtually all couples I know who have done it, are heavily indebted in doing this. Mm. They um, uh, borrow quite a lot of money. There are quite a few who will um, roll credit cards to their absolute maximum to be able to afford this. It's one of those things, when you want to be a parent, when it's so important to you, um, you're willing to go into debt for it, but when it's the only way. Um, and uh, you know, let's face it, we, we all spend money on a range of things in our life, whether it be a, you know, a luxury car, a house, um, uh, overseas holidays each year. This is just one way um, uh, people spend their money, and in this case it's um, creating a family. Indeed. Rodney, thank you for your time tonight. You are representing Gay Dads Australia. Just before we sign off, where can people find you if they'd like more information and or advice? We're at gaydadsaustralia.com and if I can just mention, there is a surrogacy conference uh, coming up in uh, April this year uh, in Melbourne. It's the second national surrogacy conference uh, run by Surrogacy Australia and for those who are interested in surrogacy and who want to find out what their options are, I reckon that's probably the best place to go. That's great, Rodney. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks very much. Interesting guy. Mm, and a, a very interesting subject. I think there's a lot of heartbroken um, oh. individuals and couples. And financially who, broken people mm, as well mm. who've run out of options to, altogether, mm. financially and probably at a, at a soul level as well. To find out more about Joy 94.9, check out joy.org.au. Look, uh, piece by piece, month by month, the map of Sydney's greatest unsolved and unacknowledged crime wave has taken shape. What that map belatedly reveals is that thousands of men were stalked, savagely assaulted, and in at least 50 cases, they were murdered. We believe that uh, Californian young man Scott Johnson was one of these young men that met with foul play in the 80s. And as you know, Pete, we have been chatting with the Johnson family and with investigated, re, investigative reporter Daniel Glick, who has, uh, you know, provided us with wonderful information over the years. And, and we've just been contacted by them because they're back in the country as of, I think, Mardi Gras on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And we have Dan on the line with us now, who's, who's going to provide us with a bit of an update. Dan, good evening. Good evening. It's nice to be back on your air. Hey, we love having you here, mate. Welcome back to Oz. Welcome. Oh, thanks. So tell us, Dan, um, what's the development? 
Well, uh, I have to start with a really uplifting um, story, and that is we were invited by Lord Mayor Clover Moore and the MP uh, Alex Greenwich to march along with them on the Mardi Gras parade. So Steve Johnson, the brother of the deceased Scott, and uh, his son Reuben and I all marched along, and it was an incredible experience. You got your gay on. <laughs> Absolutely. How could you not? Yeah, Dan, I, it must, I, I've marched in Mardi Gras and it, it, it is like no other experience I think that I've ever had and, and I'm assuming you felt the same. Now that the uplifting stuff is over, what's, what's the case development? What's changed in the case of Scott Johnston and, and obviously your involvement in this, you've been immersed in this case now for, for many years. What, what has changed that has brought you back to Australia to to confront yet another round of, of, of asking questions? Well, I guess there's two things. The first is that the Australian story broadcast, where we spoke to you last, uh, mm. it was broadcast on February 11th. Um, we got such an outpouring of uh, people coming forward to us through our Facebook page, Justice for Scott Johnson, through the media accounts, telling us of their brothers and their uncles and their sons who also met really similar fates, as well as people from the straight community who said, I heard somebody bragging about bashing pufters back in the day, and I never liked the guy now, and I don't like the guy, you know, I never liked him then, and I don't like him now, and, and, and you should look into him. So we are following up on some of the leads there. And I suppose the second thing is that we, you know, the the police did announce a $100,000 reward the day after the Australian Story show, show aired. And um, we're meeting with police because they formed a strike force, and at least we're told that they're going to seriously investigate Scott's death, and we're here to help them. So it's my understanding, uh, Dan, that you will be having your first official interview with the police tomorrow. Is that right? Exactly. We're going to sit down and we're going to um, answer all the questions they have and we're going to approach this as, as the partners um, and we think we should be, um, the victim's family, and um, and we have some information, obviously, that we've developed that we want to share with them because, let's face it, we're, we're not police officers. I'm a, I'm a journalist and Steve's the brother of the deceased. It's not our job to... To, to really do that kind of investigating. So we are taking the police at their word that they're they're going to investigate and we're going to work with them as closely as we can. Dan, do you think, that, and I'm asking you to probably, you know, look into your crystal ball here as a, <laughs> as a journalist should, do you think this will bring you closer to an answer over Scott's death? It's the first part of the question. And I guess the second part, are you prepared for a result in Scott's death to then go back to to what you were doing before this all landed on your plate? Mm, great questions. Um, I guess the first thing is that we have learned, and, and I, I know this maybe sound a little Pollyanna-ish, but that Scott's case was not in isolation. What you were reading at the beginning of the show here, our segment, um, about this being a pattern, we feel, um, I think I speak for Steve especially, um, that this is not just about finding the person or people who, who killed Scott. This is about raising awareness on a much broader scale. So even if we never actually see the person in court or behind bars who killed Scott, 
we know that we've raised um, a hue and cry that uh, told people it's safe to tell these stories and to come forward and to really show the extent, the pattern. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, this has been a personal journey as well as a, an investigative one. And it's opened my eyes to you know, a social justice movement that I've covered as a journalist for 25 years, but never with the, the kind of personal touch that this has brought to me. So I'll just carry with this, you know, as I continue on the work that I do. Well, I, I think, you know, the Johnson family are very lucky to have formed a relationship with you, Dan, because your work is, is clearly very thorough. When you meet with the police tomorrow, will you be providing reams and reams of information? I mean, how do you disseminate the research and the evidence and the collateral information you've you've garnered over the years and present that in a way that doesn't probably overwhelm them? Well, you know, honestly, we've presented some of this material over time, so it's not brand, all brand new. Um, we just try to be as thorough, as you said, as, as um, accurate, um, not hyperbolic about it. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we think somebody with a badge should do and not the family of the victim. And... You know, we'll see. Uh, you know, the good news is that we now know more about the people that were doing this. And, and largely, it's because people probably, some of your listeners, have come forward and they've shared their stories with us. And they remembered the person or the people who assaulted them or something that didn't make sense about the way their brother was reported missing. Um, so we're just sharing um, as thoroughly and accurately as we can, and we'll see what happens from there. We're speaking with Daniel Glick. He's an investigative reporter, journalist from the United States. He was working with CNN when this case first landed on his uh, on his desk and has um, taken up a fair part of his life. Uh, Dan, it, it's been estimated that uh, between 1985 and, and 1999, there were probably in excess of... 50 of these crimes, of these gay hate crimes, these murders uh, in Sydney. Um, do you think that now that uh, there's more information coming from the public about people's brothers, about people's partners, that um, the police have, have sort of got no other choice but to listen and to investigate? Well, I, I do think that this pattern is becoming clearer and it's becoming clearer to a broader audience than it ever had before. And that includes not just the police, but, but people in the political circles. I mean, again, you know, Clover Moore um, and, and Alex Greenwich are quite aware, uh, and they embraced us as part of their entourage. And it was, well, as I said at the beginning, it was like being with rock stars, you know, and, and, and yet there was, a, there was a serious thing, a uh, part to this, to our invitation and our participation in the Mardi Gras Parade, because it is both a celebration and it's a recognition that only 35 years ago, people who were marching that parade were getting beat up for it. They were indeed. And, uh, you know, probably there's probably people still bearing those those particular scars. Yeah, absolutely. So how are the Johnson family travelling right now? They've, they're travelling back and forth to Australia a great deal, and I would imagine there may in fact be some toll taken at some point. How, how is Steve going? You know, I think he is um, 
buoyed, if that's the word, by the response that we have gotten. I mean, people have stopped him on the street here in Sydney and said, good on you, mate. You know, I, I saw the Australian story and and you're doing something that's really important. And I think that, that, um, that Scott's death needs to have a bigger meaning for him now. And his life um, needs and, to have meant more than the sum of the way it ended. Right. And and I think that that's, it's, it's you know, to say helpful, I don't know if helpful is the right word, but to, to know that there's a larger purpose here and and that he, you know, because he has some of the resources he has and he's able to give voice to people that, that um, maybe wouldn't have been able to have that voice. I mean, I'm meeting with people all week. That's another thing I'm doing who had told us these stories. This happened to my brother. This happened to my uncle. And we're we're meeting with these families, and we're going to put them in touch with authorities as well. So this isn't an isolated case, and we don't want it to be, because everybody needs to be talking about the pattern. And, and the, you know, you were talking about the, the Sydney Morning Herald uh, columnist, Paul Sheehan, who wrote this piece on uh, Monday, this is not a man who's widely adored as the, a friend of the gay community. Uh, and, and, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> and and yet he he his outrage was palpable in this article. And that's because, the the impact of of the work that you've been doing. Well, and 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 I, I appreciate your kind words, and we're building on the work that many many other people here in the community have been been doing for years uh some of the people that were on the show with us like stephen page the former cop who was investigating Terradale and thompson who worked as a gay and lesbian liaison officer with the new south wales police for so long and gary witherspoon the historian of beach here in sydney we're not doing this in isolation and that's again that's perhaps the good news here we're forming these friendships and these partnerships um, that are going to endure, you know, way beyond uh, this case, and and that's, you know, that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful legacy, Dan Click. We Dan Click. We say good on you, mate. Uh, we oh. will keep in touch with you as this case evolves, and I'm sure if there is any news that you'll um, you'll let us know. It's been an 18 month journey for us with you as well, and and I'm sure a far less taxing one than what you've endured. We're really grateful for your time. Well, thanks, and, and you know, put put up on your website where people can contact us, and, and we need people to come forward and, and be part of this with us and share their story. We will certainly forward promote that for you, and and please do do be in touch about the interview with the police tomorrow. We'd right. we, we'd love to update our listeners about that. Best of luck, thanks mate. Thanks a lot. All Cheers. right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Dan, Dan Glick, investigative reporter and all-round good guy. We've, oh, look, you know... Uh, we've developed our own special relationship with Dan over the, the, the last 18 months. We have, so, you know. He's, he's a buddy, you mm. know, and and we're very fortunate to have chatted to, to Steve and his sister as well four weeks ago. You can find more Joycasts in show blogs. Go to joy.org.au. Right, in the car for a gay time, I suppose. Oh, I think, you know, thank you to Rodney Chang. Cruz. Cruz. Thank you to Dan Glick. Thank you also to Dr. Paul Cameron, of course. Thank you to Matt Nock. From the Alfred. For driving our bus. The Spirit Lounge is going to take you on a spiritual journey in just seconds. Good night, Pete. Good night, Serena. Good Good night. Afternoon delight. My motto's always been when it's right, it's right. Why wait until the... 
Joy 94.9 is a GLBTIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.